Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, and I'm coming to you from New York City. Also coming to you from New York City, we have with us Felicia Wong, who is the CEO of the Roosevelt Institute. How are you today, Felicia? I'm well. Thanks, David. And joining us from Washington, D.C. is our friend, Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Norm? I'm doing all right, David, and I'm joining you from right smack dab in the center of Washington, D.C. Not always the best place to be. No. (laughs) Condolences. Condolences on that front, particularly since there seems to be a lot of COVID going around in the center. I I saw that Speaker Pelosi seems to have it now. And the gridiron dinner was a a super spreader. I was there. So I've been uh, testing a lot. (laughs) So far, completely negative. So I wanted to talk to you guys about a subject, Norm, you and I have talked about a lot. Felicia, we've also spoken about it a little bit. And that is the strange disconnect between the performance of the Biden administration in real life, as they say on the social media, and and their performance in polls, right? So you have an administration that's created more jobs than any administration in a similar period in history, has the lowest unemployment than at any time in American history has produced the most rapid growth for a protracted year period in 40 years, has made major breakthroughs in in courts. Today, we have the confirmation of America's first African-American woman Supreme Court justice. They've appointed more judges and a more diverse crew of judges than ever, the most diverse administration in history re-entered international institutions, restored America's leadership. Polls show it around the world. Actions show it in terms of the leadership within the context of NATO and in response to the Ukraine crisis. And we could go on and on and on. And yet, every time the president seems to do something right or the administration does something right, and I didn't even mention the 
the $3.1 trillion in, in, in initiatives that came last year that took people out of hunger, helped create jobs, et cetera, et cetera, will create infrastructure that will produce growth for years to come. But his poll ratings go down. And um, that bodes ill because the way our system works, there's one party that's kind of trying to improve America and another one that's actually trying to actively undermine our democracy, fuel inequality, and actually also institutionalize racism in new ways. And so if the Democrats lose, the country loses in some big irreversible ways. I really find it real cognitive dissonance here. I have trouble understanding it. So the first thing I'd like to do is understand it and then talk about whether there's anything that can be done about it. And and maybe I could start with you, Felicia. Can you explain this to me? I wish it was an easy explanation, David. I think the best we can do is try to hypothesize about all that's going on in people's lives and why it's really hard for them to sort of focus on many of the very good things the Biden administration has done. You know, I've got actually five uh, things that I think start to explain this. One is obviously COVID, right? COVID continues to wreak havoc on people's daily lives. You all talked about the gridiron dinner and Speaker Pelosi. So COVID is causes a lot of chaos. And I think that leads into my second point, which is that overall, uh, and polls are really showing it now, Fear and anxiety are the driving emotions amongst the American electorate. Biden voters fear COVID more than Trump voters do, but overall, everyone is anxious about a worsening economy. And interestingly, we can come back to this, inflation seems to be more fear-inducing than jobs. So I think that might be one of the things that's going on here. The third thing I would say is that Part of this concern about jobs and the economy and inflation and the whole thing is especially real for Black Americans and for Latinx Americans. Some of the recovery that we have seen, which is very real and you are completely right, is unprecedented, is not doing as well for Black Americans. Black unemployment rate remains close to twice the overall unemployment rate. We know that COVID and school closures and Many, many, many different kinds of health and educational outcomes have hit these communities the hardest. And so I think that's why the Democratic base has become in some ways skeptical of Democratic politicians, Biden, obviously paradigmatic in that. And we're seeing a lot more people of all races as what some people call Tupacsers, is a phrase I heard recently, pox on both their houses, right, Republican and Democrat. Two more things I'll say, my numbers four and five. The one other thing that is happening here, obviously, in the economy is inflation, which is tricky and bedeviling both to understand and to explain. And I think the Biden team has spent a lot of time trying to explain what is happening to with inflation. And that just feels confusing in an environment where inflation really does affect everyone, whereas job growth thankfully, is good for, you know, people in the first two deciles. But inflation is really something that is affecting 100% of all Americans. Everybody drives by a gas station every day. I was just visiting my parents in California. Gas there is $7.50 a gallon, right? So inflation is fear-inducing in a lot of ways, which we can come back to. I think it's adding to that anxiety that I mentioned at the top of my answer. And then finally, 
I think we got to talk about how people think about inflation as compared to jobs. Everybody knows that inflation is due to something out of their control. So it is kind of structural in that way. But I think a lot of people think about jobs as individuals. I got a raise, it's because I did well, caused by my, my own initiative. So the Biden team doesn't get enough credit for putting so much money into the economy over the last few years. You talked about the $3 trillion in legislation. So the team, the Biden administration doesn't get credit for helping workers stay in their jobs, for helping businesses stay open, for helping to drive a hotter labor market. But they do get blamed for inflation. So, Norm, Felicia offers a compelling analysis. I think all of those points resonate. What do you think of her analysis and how would you amend or amplify or alter? Spot on. I would add a few things. I think uh, it is a, a point that Felicia made is particularly important. Job growth is terrific, but most Americans have jobs. And if they've moved to a better job, they aren't necessarily going to attribute that to any actions taken by the president or the administration. But inflation does affect everybody, as she said. That's certainly a part of it. I think another part that we need to emphasize is the role of the press. We had 500,000 jobs uh, gained. It barely made a blip. It wasn't on the front page uh, of major newspapers. I can guarantee you that if the job growth had been 50,000, it would have been headline news. Job growth, deeply disappointing, perhaps recession on the way. Good news gets driven out. Bad news dominates. And that's even more true with a press corps that is so eager to show that they don't have a liberal bias that they jump on every bit of bad news that affects the administration or every little thing that can be labeled a a scandal. And that's an ongoing and bedeviling problem. I think in a larger sense, you alluded to this at the beginning, David, there's a distemper globally. The sense of uncertainty long before the war in Ukraine, but just more broadly, that we don't quite know where the world is going. With COVID, It's lives disrupted over more than two years. But I also think for us and in many other places, this sense after the first year that we were turning a corner and then Delta comes and then Omicron comes and not knowing what the right thing to do is, having these deeper divisions over masking uh, and vaccinations and schools opening or not opening, the mental health issues that have flowed from it leads to that sense of throw the ins out and bring the outs in. And that's part of a pox on both your houses, certainly. But it also reflects a frightening level of either indifference or ignorance or both in many parts of the electorate, not to understand what the alternative is. And the alternative in the United States is veering dangerously close to something that it's not a great exaggeration to call it as uh, Madeleine Albright did, fascism. But certainly, racist, homophobic, sexist, and a lot of other things. And it's radicals who are dominating the alternative now. That's a huge problem that we have to confront. And finally, let me just add that I do not think the administration or the Democratic Party generally have handled the adversity well. There's a sense among Democrats that actions speak for themselves. And all of those great actions, and David, you've heard me say this many times, that if we had been sitting at the inaugural of uh, Joe Biden on January 20th of 2021, 
and said, you know what? In a year, we're going to have, even with an evenly divided Senate and a three to four vote margin in the House, all of these incredible things happening, including the three plus trillion dollars in aid for people and get them back on their feet to deal with crumbling infrastructure and the like, the reaction would have been, you got to be crazy. They could never do all of that. But the fact is they put a lot beyond that into Build Back Better, which was an empty slogan that people didn't understand. Instead of framing it in terms of every program that was a part of Build Back Better that is enormously popular with Republicans, independents, and Democrats, even now, as I watched the hearings with Judge Jackson, she was being slimed in the most vicious fashion by senators from Lindsey Graham to Josh Hawley to Tom Cotton to Ted Cruz to Marsha Blackburn. And not a single Democrat on that panel went after them the way, for example, Lindsey Graham went after Democrats when Brett Kavanaugh had been nominated. And if you look at Biden's approval, he's never going to do well with Republicans and they're never going to give him any credit for positive things in the economy. It's the sagging approval and enthusiasm in that Democratic base. And they've got to have a sense that Democrats are fighting back. And without that sense, and now without action yet taken on the top officials in the Trump administration who tried to overthrow our uh, election and uh, encouraged a violent insurrection, the sense of at best ennui is pervasive. There has to be a change in approach here. Joe Biden has to channel his inner Harry Truman at this point. Let me break this into a couple of pieces. The first piece I want to deal with, because COVID's going to take care of itself one way or another, and it's likely that by the time we get to the fall, it's going to be less of an issue. The remaining issue that's associated with ennui or rejection or, or unhappiness is going to turn largely on the economy. Now, we've just said that almost everything in the economy is is trending in a good direction, with one core exception, and that is this issue of inflation. And I want to talk about how to tackle that. But, you know, Felicia, in the couple of times that we've talked, I feel that I can open up about my inner nerd to you. And I want to deal with one core issue here that you touched upon, and that is, you know, as far as inflation is concerned, there was a kind of a debate out there when the the president initiated America recovery package and the infrastructure package and so forth, where there were some people who were saying, well, this is inflationary and we shouldn't do it. They didn't touch upon the fact that if we didn't do it, a lot of people would be out of work. A lot of people would be in poverty. A lot of people would be hungry and that it was worth a little bit of inflation for a little bit of a while in order to deal with the human issues. This is a debate that's been going on in the Democratic Party and in the, in, the, in, the, in the country for the past 30 years. And, you know, central to it, you know, you have Larry Summers, who's now out there on a kind of a victory tour saying, hey, I was right. There was inflation coming. Of course, I think he was wrong. I think he was wrong because I think the administration should have done what it did because I think it should have helped people first. And I think modest inflation, which can be dealt with over the course of the near term, is something that, you know, is the price we have to pay in a, in a time of profound crisis like we were in when all this started. Do I have this wrong, Felicia? I think, David, that you have it exactly right. Two years ago, when the pandemic started, Democrats and 
Republicans, but Democrats came together to say Democrats led the way, right, in saying that the most important thing here is to spend enough money to make sure that our economy is able to continue to function as best it can, right? Economists will call that running this a little bit hot. The watchword then, which I still think was absolutely right then, is that it is far riskier to do too little and to risk a great recession again than to do too much. And so that is exactly what they did. And that is why you see this average of, you know, close to 500,000 jobs being added per month for almost a year. That is totally extraordinary. And that is the result. That kind of labor market is the result of federal action. And I don't think that most people understand that. And I don't think that the Biden team has spent enough time actually explaining that. Instead, I do think they've spent a lot of time, understandable, because as I said, inflation is a really bedeviling issue, but they spent a lot of time trying to respond to worries about and even accusations about inflation. They actually have done a pretty good job of explaining that, you know, by some lights, it's less than half a percent of all of the inflation that we've seen has been caused actually by federal spending. The rest of it has to do with a, lot, a combination of things, including corporate profiteering including supply chains that have become really attenuated. They were already thin and they've become even weaker because of the pandemic, of course. And now the war in Europe has enormous numbers of casualties. And one of them is energy prices. So these are all causes of inflation. But we find ourselves talking all about the causes of inflation rather than saying, actually, there are some things we know. One thing we know is that federal spending has kept the labor market healthy and made sure that um, millions and millions of Americans could either keep their jobs or go back to work. And I think that's an important thing. That that kind of trade-off is an important thing to continue explaining. And I think the I think we all need to do a better job of that. What else, Dorm, do you think we can do to crack the riddle of communicating about that? So this is where we have inflation for all the reasons that uh, Felicia said. You want a president and a Democratic Party showing that they're fighting back against it. I would like to have seen Joe Biden haul in the heads of all the oil companies and ask them why they have record profits at a time when uh, Americans are suffering with high gas prices. Ask them why it seems to be that when the price of oil goes up, the price at the pump goes up immediately. And when the price of oil comes down, as it did recently, there is a long lag. I would like to see if they won't come to the White House, congressional committees subpoena them, do what Henry uh, Waxman did with tobacco companies. Then another possibility, whenever we've had big inflation before, Richard Nixon imposed price controls and they were popular at the time. Instead of just opening up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is a modest band-aid fix on the price of oil, do something more. You can put a price cap on the price of gas and then promise that you are going to come up with funds to reimburse the gas station owners who may have to suffer losses uh, under the circumstances. There are steps that you could take that may be controversial, 
Maybe the Supreme Court overrules you on price controls. Then you can go out to the country and explain why the Supreme Court is with big oil and not with the American consumer. I think you've got to show that you're fighting against this, even as, of course, you take all kinds of steps wherever you can to ease the supply chain problems and uh, make it work better. I hope we talk after the break more and more about all the things we can do. I love all of Norm's suggestions. But let me just say one thing in the real world right now, which never makes headlines, but which really should. You know, close to 50% of all occupations are seeing real wage gains on average this year as compared to last year. Real wage gains, even when you factor in inflation. And those wage gains are concentrated in in the low-wage sector, low-wage jobs. We don't often say enough that even in this economy that does have significant inflation, working families are gaining. We ought to be saying that. We're not saying that enough. That's a really, really good point. As are all of Norm's points, I'd like to continue to talk about those kind of things and what positive steps can be taken to change perceptions and increase the likelihood that we get a healthy outcome in the November elections. And I will do that right after we take our break. For those of you who are joining us in the general public who are not members, uh, we say goodbye to you now and I hope you've enjoyed the the podcast so far. And if you want to hear the uh, section that's for members only, all you have to do is go to the website, click on the dsrnetwork.com, become a member. We've had the biggest boost in membership we've ever had over the course of the past several months. Uh, I think that's because it's good programming like this. I think it's because of The need for information like we provide in the context of uh, this Ukraine conflict and other issues. And uh, we hope it'll continue and we hope you'll join those who've joined us. So go to the dsrnetwork.com and click membership. And for all our members, we'll be back in one moment. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. 